today on Ag News Daily. And so after that, it's it's a function of us brainstorming here on campus with respect to what questions might be interesting and uh, what might be on producers' minds. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Mike Pearson here, joined by the always delightfully sunny Delaney Howe. Delaney, how you doing? Good. I like that. Delightfully sunny. Am I always delightfully sunny? You most certainly are not, but uh, you sound up positive today. I am. I'm getting ready to go to Chile tomorrow, so who would be excited about that? Going to Chile. Chile, yes. Where in Chile are you going? <laughs> Puerto Varas. Puerto Varas. Mm-hmm. Ah, interesting. And what are you doing down in Chile? Yeah, so I will be there for an entire week, seven days. Uh, going out a couple days early, but I'll be going down with the United Soybean Export Council. They have their annual Soybean Buyers Conference down there. They change locations every year. So last year I went to Colombia with them. This year, Puerto Varas, Chile. Who knows where they'll be next year, but hopefully I get to go again with them. I like going. It's an interesting group, interesting dynamic because they have analysts. They have soybean buyers from Mexico, Brazil, Argentina, Colombia, Peru. I mean, it's the gamut of... Colombia, Peru. Yes. You need to practice your pronunciation. If you're going to be dead all this time in South America. I have been brushing up on my Spanish skills. There's a cool app called Duolingo that I've been using. Oh, conoces español, sí? Yeah, sí, un pequeña. Oh, pequeño, sí, okay. Mm -hmm, mm Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. All right, just just a very little. Yeah, very little. I can ask for a drink, where the bathroom is, how much something costs. I don't know what else I need to ask. Donde esta la refrigerador? <laughs> yeah, there you go. Where is the refrigerator? That's right. always a key question when you're yeah. in a, a foreign country. Okay. You got to know where to store your cervezas. Yes, si. Well, you know, it's going to be good. You're down there talking to soybean buyers, Delaney. We are going to be needing buyers yes. from around the world to be buying our soybeans. And I tell you what, today is a great day. If you are an end user, if you're a foreign customer listening to this podcast today, call up uh, call up some some Iowa or some some American exporters and get some beans on the books. We've got a fire sale going on today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and weekly export sales numbers were not great this morning, so it's nice to see that we've had some pickup, I guess, in sales. Yeah, have we? I, I didn't. I didn't have a chance to look at the numbers. What? What? Bring us up to speed. Let me pull them up really quick. I just caught him this. I caught him this morning. Um, I can't you remember. Pull that. Yeah. I want to talk a little bit about what's going on. So we'll get to the markets here in just a little bit, listeners. For those of you who are in a grain production, no doubt you've been getting your texts from your elevators and your co-ops with today's markets. We're down across the board in the grains. It is an ugly, ugly day. Dollar is stronger. Trade talk continues to weaken the markets. Tonight at 12.01, after midnight tonight, we are raising tariffs on Chinese goods. We are doing that 10% to 25% jump on 250 million, or excuse me, billion dollars worth of Chinese imports. Um, China did say that they are, they're coming here. They're hoping to salvage a deal. They want to put these tariff hikes on hold. But so far, that does not appear to be happening. Um, basically, China is now very offended that the U.S. has said they are backtracking on some of their comments. Uh, Gao Fang, who is the Commerce Ministry Minister of China, said, quote, The U.S. side has given many labels recently, backtracking, betraying, etc. China sets great store on trustworthiness and keeps its promises, and this has never changed. 
And so he is very upset with President Trump's comments that uh, China broke the deal with their renegotiation tactics, their deleting of several key, from the U.S. perspective, key components of this trade deal. And um, this trade war looks set to continue. These tariffs are going to go into effect, and China has said they will retaliate. Uh, Feng also said, excuse me, Liu Hei also said that, uh, quote, we hope the U.S. can meet China halfway and take care of each other's concerns and resolve existing problems through cooperations and consultations. But words are cheap and we're not seeing much action. We're certainly not seeing any pens get set to paper and any trade deals get signed. Well, it's interesting you say that. I have a little bit of a different story set here. It sounds like a little bit of optimism coming out of the White House, according to Sarah Huckabee Sanders, who is the White House spokeswoman. She said and told reporters on Wednesday, we've got an indication that they want to make a deal. Our teams are in continued negotiations. Of course, they're in Washington, D.C. this week. It sounds like from what they've said, and, and the White House's official statement is they think that we are close to a trade deal. But, you know, we say that, you say yeah, that. What was that? We've been hearing that for a year. I know. I know. So, But we also had other White House news. This came out today. President Trump said he has received a, quote, beautiful letter from Chinese President <laughs> Xi Jinping. And, uh, and so this is what President Trump said. I, I don't – he was talking to reporters. This wasn't a tweet. President Trump said, quote, he just wrote me a beautiful letter. I've just received it, and I'll probably speak to him by phone. He quoted G as saying, let's work together. Let's see if we can get something done. So if that letter is true, if President Xi Jinping is actually getting involved in these things, you know, he's basically the dictator over there. These things can get done maybe fairly quickly. Maybe that's where we're at. Yeah, I don't know. It's It seems like. From a Chinese perspective, they would want to get it done as soon as possible because uh, according to some of the latest numbers and analysts or analysis here from the Chinese inflation standpoint, we know, of course, their economy has dropped. We have seen food consumer price inflation rise 6.1% over a year ago this time last year compared to just small increases in food and food inflation that they were facing this time last year, and pork prices have soared 14.4% on a year average. So, you know, consumer-wise, it's not benefiting China to continue these trade and tariff negotiations and trade wars, but they can, I guess, make those long-call gains if that's really what they want to do. Well, you know, I mean, when you're effectively a dictator... You can't afford to ignore yeah. people's concerns up to a point. You know, China's 1.3 billion people. If they get hungry and they get mad enough mm-hmm. and they can't get enough pork on their plates, eventually the pitchforks and the torches come out and uh, you're no longer dictator. Right. Yeah. And going along, yeah. I was just going to say, going along with that, because of African swine fever, of course, is increasing food costs, especially pork prices. But we keep hearing about this idea that global meat over the next year or so, will be declining. We won't have enough to feed or uh, fill the demand that we have. The United Nations has put out a new report here that is also solidifying this idea that we will have global meat consumption and production fall for the first time in two decades because of that African swine fever disease. They say as a whole, farmers will produce about two-tenths of a percent less of meat this year 
not a huge drop, but they said meat production has increased as a whole since 2000 by 45%. So it is a little alarming to see that we're dropping and not increasing because we've seen such rapid production growth here over the last really two decades. Well, and I wonder if maybe some of that drop is just the markets haven't been terribly favorable. Mm -hmm. There's been volatility, you know, interest costs are rising. I wonder if it isn't just a little bit of a retrenchment, a recalculation of where we're at before we start to see herds expand again. Boy, but we need to see the market move. Watching live cattle move down towards that $100 mark is awfully depressing if you're a cattle feeder. And, you know, watching hogs in what should be a banner year with ASF spreading around the globe, watching hogs see limit down days this week is awfully gosh darn depressing. Yeah, it is. Well, I do have some good news. You know, we talk a lot about the strength of the U.S. economy and how that drives consumers buying preferences and how they in turn buy that high end protein that we are so good at producing. And one metric of how the economy is performing is how many people are enrolled in SNAP, formerly known as the Food Stamps Program. Now, of course, it's Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program. And uh, this surprised me. SNAP accounts for 68% of all federal food and nutrition spending in, uh, in 2018. That's a huge, a huge, you know, portion of it. Yeah, that but- is. Here's the good news. For the fifth year in a row, 2018 saw fewer people signing up for SNAP uh, benefits. So people are getting off SNAP. They're getting to, to be able to survive on their own. They're not relying on Uncle Sam. And that's great news. That shows that at the low end of the economic spectrum, those consumers who are struggling the hardest are finally able to, more and more of them anyway, are able to be getting jobs and being able to make their own food purchases, which is great news. That is great news. Yeah, as long as those food purchases they're making continue to be high-end protein and uh, stuff that's uh, grown right here in this country. Yes, definitely. Well, let's take a quick break from the news and get an update from our good friend, the hot rod farmer, Ray Bohax. Hot Rod Farmer Minute. I am Ray Bohax from the Idle Chatter podcast found on the Global Ag Network. Everything on the farm works hard and an engine is no exception. Regardless if it is gas or diesel, the conversion of chemical to mechanical energy produces heat. The harder the engine works, the more fuel it consumes. Each gallon of fuel has a heating value measured in British thermal units. The engine's thermal load is intrinsically linked to the rate of fuel consumption. Under high load, the coolant temperature may not change much or at all, but the rest of the engine, and especially the exhaust gas temperature, goes up substantially. This raises the underhood temperature. It needs to be recognized that elevated underhood temperature is the silent killer of engines and their components. The underhood temperature rises dramatically when the engine is shut down. This is due to the cooling system no longer functioning. It is known as heat soak. Heat is the enemy of rubber hoses and belts, engine gaskets, wires, sensors, electronics, seals, alternator, battery, radiator, emission systems, and AC components. They are all degraded during heat soak. Even the engine block cylinder head along with the turbocharger are impacted. It is quite simple to reduce this effect. 
Idle the engine for one minute before shutting it down and then open the hood. Letting the engine run for just one minute will allow the cooling system to work and limit the thermal spike. Since heat rises, opening the hood will allow it to travel into the atmosphere instead of being absorbed. When you are done for the day or are stopping work for some reason, let the heat escape. If you want any engine and its systems to last substantially longer, just open the hood and let the heat out. Have a blessed week and pop that hood. One update, it's not really an update, but we keep talking about the house disaster package. They are beginning to start debate today on that new disaster aid bill to, of course, provide assistance for folks affected by wildfires, hurricanes, flooding, etc. But again, Memorial Day weekend is their target deadline for getting this deal passed and put together. Well, I hope they do. I Fingers crossed. We've seen so many deadlines come and go on this deal. And mm-hmm. I, come on, guys. Let's get some bipartisan action in place. Let's help out American producers. Let's help out the Puerto Ricans. We're all Americans. Let's come together and get something done. Absolutely. Um, Delaney, what are your plans September 25th through the 27th of 2019? Not a clue. That's a long ways away. Exactly. So why we got to get this on your radar right away? I know several of our good friends have gone to this conference. The Women in Agribusiness Summit is going to be, I just got a press release from them. It will be that weekend, September 25th through the 27th. It's going to be at the Hyatt Regency, so a very fancy hotel in Minneapolis. And they're going to have 40 different speakers. They're going to uh, tour a lot of the CHS grain handling facilities up there in Minneapolis. Sounds like a really, really cool event. And we got to make sure you get up there because you certainly are a... uh, well, yeah, you're you're a woman in agribusiness. I am. I don't farm really, actively, but really a lady in agribusiness. You're you're kind of a kind of a woman. Hey, all right, watch yeah. yourself. Yeah. <laughs> um, I was just going to say, folks, check that out. Uh, like I say, it's getting started. You can just Google up Women in Agribusiness Summit, the WIA, and check out their website. They've got it all announced. You can get signed up right now. All right. Well. I have just one other piece of news, and it's kind of some fun news, because I always like to watch, you know, different food trends. I'm kind of a foodie. I live in Des Moines. It's kind of a foodie city. And we've seen McDonald's. I can't remember if I've talked about this on the podcast before, but they are always introducing these new menu items, global food menu items. And they're bringing a couple of ones to the United States, actually a couple I'm excited about, and I don't love McDonald's or fast food, but... They are bringing the Stroop Waffle McFlurry, the Grand Mick Extreme Bacon Burger, the Tomato Mozzarella Chicken Sandwich, and Cheesy Bacon Fries to participating McDonald's locations starting June 5th. Personally, I love Stroop Waffles, so I'm most excited about that one. So for our listeners who aren't uh, as cultured as you are, Delaney, <laughs> bring us up to, what the heck is a Stroop Waffle? Okay, well... For those of you that have been to Pella, Iowa, which is a Danish, little Danish-American city, um, Stroopwafels are... Oh, Danish? Pella is I'm Dutch. I'm sorry. You're, you're <laughs> going to have angry letters. You're going to have... I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Yes. Corporate Dutch. Yes. Um, so, Four. Netherlands Four. is where I had my first Stroopwafel. They're a very Dutch country. Um, it's essentially... How do I explain it? It's like... It looks like a waffle. Like, texture-wise, it looks like a waffle. It's a very flat cookie with, like, a caramel maple syrup 
in the cookie. Yes. It's so and good. I believe you can also get served Stroop waffles on Delta flights. Yes, you can. Mm-hmm, I get them. Yeah. yeah, so I always fly Delta for those, and then the other little cookies they serve, I think, are delicious. Yeah, mm-hmm. I'm flying Delta to Chile, so maybe I'll get some Stroop waffles on my flight. Ooh, there you go. To You're flying Delta to where? To Chile. To Chile. Yes, to Chile. Oh. Get this right. It's Chile. All right. All right. I'm very particular about that. Okay. I believe you. You know, you want to get that right. I want to get that right. All right. Well, speaking of getting things right, the markets certainly aren't doing that for a lot of our producers. But what do you say, Delaney? Should we jump in and see where prices ended for the day? Let's do it. All right, folks, and it is a great day if you're an end user. If you're a feedlot, as Naomi Bloom said on Monday, this is a time to get some of your feed needs filled, probably through harvest. We are having a fire sale across the board, and if you want to manage some of your marketing risk, give our friends at Zaner a call. They bring us the markets every single day, and you can reach them at 312-277-0050, or you can visit them on the web at Zaner, Z-A-N-E-R.com, and tell them you heard it on Ag News Daily. Oh, here we go. Producer friends. You might want to turn off the radio, put down your phone, and just go in the house because we are seeing double-digit losses across all the categories today. Starting with corn, the July corn contract was down 11 and three-quarter cents, finished at 352 and a half. December new crop down 10 and a quarter to close at 372 even. Soybeans, another ugly day. We have now broken through all of those support lines that Naomi was speaking about on Monday. July beans down 16 and a quarter, closed at 811 even. November new crop down 16 cents to finish at 834 and a half. Wheat was no different to the July contract was down a dime at 429 and a half. December down eight and a half to close at 452 and three quarters. One of the bright spots was livestock was able to catch a bid. Wasn't a great bid, but at least we arrested the downward movement. June live cattle down 87 and a half cents at 111.95. The August contract down 20 to close at 107.60. Feeder cattle, August up 60 cents at 144.47.50. September up 42.50 to finish at 145.27.50. And in lean hogs, that June contract up $1.45 hit the $90 mark, closed at $90 even. The July up 22.5 to finish at 90.97.50. And for our friends in the dairy industry, May class three milk down six cents at 16.35 with the June down seven. Wrapping the day at 16.36. For our discussion today, we're going to delve into the intricacies and the nuances of a sentiment report we talk about monthly on this podcast. The Ag Economy Barometer will be joined by Dr. Jim Minnert from Purdue. Well, folks, as promised earlier this week, we are talking to Dr. James Meintert at Purdue University, who is the professor of agricultural economics and director center for commercial agriculture there at Purdue and also works very closely to put together the ag economy barometer that we report on monthly here on the podcast. Jim, thanks so much for taking the time, first of all, to chat with us today. It's a pleasure to be on the program. Well, let's discuss some of the history behind the Ag Economy Barometer. We talk about it on the podcast. Folks talk about it in the ag industry, but how did it come to be? What was the mindset of putting this survey, if you will, together in the first place? Well, the mindset was there's a number of sentiment surveys that measure the economic health of the U.S. economy. And, uh, you know, probably the best known one is the University of Michigan Survey of Consumers. Uh, but there's several others. Uh, there was nothing that was focused on the agricultural sector, especially the agricultural producer sector. And so that was the mindset. It was 
uh, here's an important part of the U.S. economy, and uh, nobody's out there talking to folks that are engaged in production agriculture to get a handle on what they're thinking and what their perspective was on uh, uh, the ag economy in general and, and a little more specifically their own farming operations. And so how long ago was it that the decision was made to start running a survey and compiling uh, this information? We started collecting data in the fall of 2015, and we collected data behind the scenes, if you will, for about six months before we released our first uh, results publicly in the spring of 2016. However, the, the data that we collected initially is available on the website, and when you look at our charts, uh, we do include that data. Uh, but we wanted to collect data for a little while uh, without saying too much about it to get a handle on how it was going to work, et cetera. And it, and it turned out it was working right from the first month. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, explain to us the breakdown, because obviously part of it is the barometer and part of it is surveys done by by or producers, basically, survey. And how do you go about picking those folks that are surveyed, the producers that are surveyed, because it'll say, you know, 400 producers were surveyed this month, and here's what we found. How do you go about that? So uh, everything we do is based on survey responses. So everything we publish, you know, all the charts, et cetera, that you see in the write-up is all based on the survey responses. So what we did is we looked at uh, the USDA's um, uh, Census of Agriculture. In our case, it was the, the previous one, the 2012 census. Uh, to look at the population of farms, and we wanted to focus on people that derived the majority of their family's income from production agriculture. So to do that, we focused on people that had a gross revenue, an estimated gross revenue of $500,000 and up. Um, those are people that might not be generating all their income from production agriculture, but certainly a very substantial portion of their income is coming from production agriculture. So that was the group of people we wanted to focus on. Secondly, we wanted to focus on people that were producing the, the major commodities. So our surveys only focus on individuals that um, indicate that they are producing uh, corn, soybeans, wheat, and cotton on the crop side. On the livestock side, we, f we focus our surveys on people that uh, have a dairy operation, a beef operation, uh, or a pork operation. Uh, we don't survey chicken producers, and the reason we get that question a lot, the reason we don't survey anybody in the chicken industry is because that industry is so heavily concentrated. Very small number of firms control a, a large percentage of production, so uh, there wasn't a good way to, to conduct that, that portion of the survey. But um, So when you think about agriculture, it really focuses on those, those major commodities. We, we don't focus our surveys, we don't stratify our surveys to try and talk to people that produce specialty crops. Um, so one way to think about that is um, our surveys are not particularly representative of what's going on in the state of California where specialty crops are so dominant of an enterprise. But when you think about the broader picture of U.S. agriculture, um, it does do a good job of capturing what's taking place uh, among the producers of those major, uh, major commodities. And then we stratify the survey every month so we don't talk to the same people every month. Uh, in fact, if you talk to us one month, we guarantee you won't be in the survey pool for at least another year. Oh, wow. But we, but we, um, <clears throat> we stratify the survey in a way that the characteristics of the people that we talk to each month are held constant. So to put that in perspective, um, you know, the, the percentage of people that produce corn and soybeans is held constant every month. Uh, the percentage of people that produce beef is held constant every month. 
uh, the percentages hold the produce pork uh, and produce dairy and so on. Those percentages are held constant. So we have the same number of um, corn and soybean producers, same number of wheat producers, same number of cotton producers in the survey every month. Uh, that's how we uh, retain the comparability from one month to the next. It's by holding those characteristics constant as opposed to talking to the same people every month. Now, when we report on the Ag Economy Barometer, we always report on the headline number, the index value that you guys publish every month. And so is that derived by rolling together corn and beef and dairy and cotton producers all into one snapshot of uh, expectations and sentiment? Exactly. And the way that's done is, um, and again, this was, we looked very closely at, at what the University of Michigan has been doing with their consumer sentiment survey, uh, partly because they're the granddaddy of, of sentiment surveys. They've been doing it since the 1950s. So we looked very carefully at how their survey was constructed and it, and really tried to adapt what they were doing to agriculture. So uh, sentiment surveys are based really, and ours is based on five questions. There's five questions we start the survey with every month, and we use those uh, to compute individual indices for each question, and then we aggregate those into the five. And so that the barometer is that overall measure of, of sentiment across those those main enterprises that we just talked about, um, and it gives the broad picture. Um, so there's some limitations with that. I guess one of the more common questions we get is, uh, can you give us a sentiment survey for people in Iowa that produce corn and soybeans? And the answer is no, we can't do that because we don't have a large enough sample. So the 400 uh, survey uh, responses we get every month uh, is is large enough in the aggregate to express our results with a confidence level plus or minus five points. Um, but when you start trying to disaggregate it and look at, like, for example, the Corn Belt or individual states, those are probably the two questions we get the most, we don't have a large enough sample size to, to disaggregate the results down to that level. We'd have to have a much larger sample size, which would obviously be a lot more expensive to survey every month. Yeah, that makes sense. I guess the last question I had as far as a background or history question goes before we maybe talk about some of the recent surveys that have come out, including the one that just came out this week, was you also partner with the CME group. What sort of relationship or value do they add into the research that you guys are already doing with producers? Well, the, the primary role of CME group is that they provide the funding. So as you might guess, uh, doing a, a survey, and this is a phone-based survey, so we work with a survey provider that actually conducts the, the phone calls every month on our behalf. Um, and doing that is relatively expensive. So the funding for this project really uh, originated with the CME group. So it was kind of a joint effort in terms of brainstorming this project. CME group was willing to fund this as something that they thought would be beneficial to the agricultural sector to just increase a little, um, contribute uh, an increase in knowledge with respect to what's taking place in the ag economy. And they were willing to do that. Um, you know, primarily kind of a uh, kind of a public relations effort, I guess, if you will. Um, but in terms of the actual survey, the way it's put together, the questions, the analysis, et cetera, that's all done here on campus um, by myself and, and uh, my colleague, Dr. Michael Langemeyer. So we're really the primary partners, and then we have some staff that helps us do, um, you know, things like, you know, managing the website and, and doing some of the other information delivery that we do. So. Uh, it's kind of a joint effort, but the funding comes from CME Group, and the, the product actually is coming from Purdue University. 
Well, now, Dr. Bernard, let's talk a little bit about what some of the recent surveys have shown. Looking back at your data through, oh, the early part of 2016, we see a huge spike there in November of 2016. Producer sentiment exploded uh, right around election time. You know, the, this Donald Trump's uh, election really jazzed up producers. We saw that, that drop off, but we stayed elevated here until the last couple of months in your opinion, is it this ongoing trade war battle that's starting to wear on producers, or is it just a function of price and these drag-ons in commodity pricing that's hurting sentiment? Well, it's it's both. It's probably very difficult to disentangle those two. I think if you think about it from a kind of a cause and effect standpoint, uh, the trade dispute has obviously contributed to weaker prices, especially on the soybean side, but it's a little more the than just soybeans. Uh, some of that's obviously though related to the fact that we had exceptional yields last year, so and in, in, in high level of production. So it's a little hard to disentangle that. Um, if you look at the data, though, I think uh, one of the things that we've seen is people have been uh, relatively supportive of the trade strategy, although we saw maybe some erosion of that on this most recent survey. Um, you know, if we look at it. Um, we asked on this last survey, actually the last couple of months, we asked people, do you think um, the soybean trade dispute with China will be settled by July 1? And, uh, you know, back in March, I think 72%, excuse me, in March, 55% of the producers said they thought it was unlikely to be settled by July 1. On the April survey, that jumped to 72%, so almost three out of four. So we, we kind of saw some erosion. But then there's a follow-up question where we asked um, – uh, do you expect the trade dispute with China to ultimately be resolved in a way that's beneficial to U.S. agriculture? And we still had over 70% of the people saying they said, ultimately, we think this will be beneficial. So I think when you look at it that way, I'm inclined to say that people's erosion in their sentiment that we show in the overall index and we show in that index of current conditions and index of future expectations is probably driven more a little bit more, but just by what's taking place on the price side, looking at their uh, bottom line, both for, uh, to some extent, 2018 crop, which hasn't been marketed yet in some cases, and then especially the 2019 crop. Um, but on this last survey, I think we saw a little bit of an erosion of that confidence, uh, particularly when you think about the July 1 aspect, because the July 1 is – not really a magic date, but it's kind of an important time frame because if you think about trade with China, particularly on the soybean side, historically the bulk of our soybean sales to China take place in the fourth quarter and spilling over into the early part of the winter quarter. And if we don't settle a trade dispute relatively soon, we run the risk of being locked out of the Chinese market for the 2019 crop as we were for the 2018 crop. And I think that's one of the erosions that we're seeing in the futures market here in recent weeks. Uh, some of that's obviously weather in terms of delayed plantings and you know prospects for acreage shifts. But the other one is this increasing concern that we might be locked out of the Chinese market for a second year in a row. Yeah, I think that's definitely a big concern across the ag industry. I'm curious about the question included in this past month's report. Do you think the United States should try to rejoin the Trans-Pacific Partnership um, et cetera, et cetera. How do you go about picking those questions, first of all, that you put in the ref or in the surveys every month? And then what was the reasoning behind putting that question in particular in this past month's survey? 
Well, you've, you've asked a great question. So the way the questions go, uh, we have the base questions we have to ask every month to compute the indices. And then after that, um, when we get people on the phone, we, we try to promise to not keep them on the phone for more than five minutes. And fortunately for us, it doesn't take five minutes to answer those first five questions. So it gives us a little extra time to ask some other things that we think might be interesting. And so after that, it's, it's a function of us brainstorming here on campus with respect to what questions might be interesting and uh, what might be on producers' minds. And we were thinking about the whole trade picture. And, and when you talk to a lot of economists, a lot of economists um, think that staying in the uh, TPP would have been a good idea. And uh, we really hadn't seen anything where people had asked producers whether or not they thought it was a good idea. So that was kind of how that originated. Um, we don't have anything to compare those results to, so it's, that's the first time we asked that question. So I don't know if that response has changed over the last six months or the last year. But I did think it was kind of interesting to the fact that roughly uh, almost half the people in the survey um, thought that being in TPP would be a good idea. And the administration obviously uh, disagreed with that and, and pulled out of TPP soon after the election. So um, that was really the motivation, though, just to get an idea as to what, what producers were thinking on this. Jim, as you look ahead, uh, there's so much that we can do today with data that just wasn't possible thanks to uh, computing power and everything else we have. Where do you see the barometer going? What sort of functions do you envision it serving as you look ahead one, three, five years into the future? Great question. So I've got a master's student, one of my graduate students, that's uh, um, her thesis is going to be on uh, exactly what you just asked. Uh, how can we extract information from the barometer and maybe use it as per, uh, some sort of a leading indicator. So uh, one of our challenges there is the barometer is still pretty new. Uh, we don't have a huge amount of data when you think about the number of months of data that we have in terms of using it as a leading indicator. But, uh, you know, one of the, one of the uh, aspects of the barometer that gets a lot of attention um, is what we call the large investments index. Um, and I think I have the chart in, in this month's uh, report, um, and it's titled The Advisability of Making Large Investments in Machinery and Buildings. And that's based on a question of, you know, would you, do you think now is a good time or a bad time to make large investments in your farming operation? And, uh, you know, that index took a downward turn uh, this past month, and we dropped from a reading of 57 to 48 uh, this past month. I think there's only been five times since we've been collecting data in the fall of 15 where that index has fallen below 50. And, you know, that it indicates to us that you know, producers are very concerned about what's taking place out there. Um, it indicates that they are probably reducing their capital expenditures or holding back on capital expenditures in an, in an attempt to probably preserve their working capital. And the question is, how does that index relate to what really takes place with respect to sales of, for example, farm machinery, uh, farm buildings, um, other large investments that, that farmers might make. And so um, she's focused pretty heavily on trying to figure out if we can identify a statistical relationship there between uh, the information that we're extracting from that question um, and some other uh, investment models uh, and see whether or not we can use that as, a, as an improvement with respect to forecasting what's taking place, which obviously would be helpful to a lot of people in the industry if they could do a little better job anticipating uh, what farmers are thinking with respect to making large investments in their operation. Um, so that'll be interesting. Um, so that's just one idea. Uh, but as we get more data, there will be more opportunities to use this to you know, get a better handle on what farmers are thinking and what are the implications for the ag economy, what are the imp implications with respect to what people plan to do with their farms, 
Um, we periodically ask questions about, you know, are, are you planning to bring um, a new family member back into a farming operation? Is this a good time or a bad time to do that? So uh, lots of information that we're collecting that once we get a large enough database will be an opportunity to maybe extract some more information from that. Yeah, well, this has been really fascinating. Jim, before we let you go, if uh, producers or folks listening haven't seen the latest survey or maybe want to check out some old surveys, where can they do go to do that? So if you uh, just go to purdue.ag slash agbarometer, uh, that should bring up the website. Alternatively, you can uh, uh, just go to the Center for Commercial Agriculture's website, and if you any any search engine, if you type uh, Purdue Center for Commercial Agriculture, we should pop up number one in your search results, and there's a link to the Ag Barometer on that website on the on the main menu bar. So either one of those would work. And uh, yeah, we keep a, a complete library of all the reports that are out there. You can look at obviously the current report, but also the past reports. Uh, we record a short video every month that kind of summarizes the results. And then we have kind of a chart library, so if you want to look at the individual charts, um, we keep a pretty comprehensive chart library out there that you can just kind of look at. And if you want to download those charts and use them anyway, that uh, you can download them in a, in a graphics file format and use them in a slideshow or something like that. So, Awesome. Well, Dr. James Miner with the Ag Economy Barometer and Purdue University, thank you so much for taking the time to explain the science behind those charts. Thanks for the opportunity. Look, talk, look forward to talking to you again. All right. Well, there we go. It's great to get that kind of uh, inside baseball information, isn't it, Delaney? See how these how the sausage is made, so to speak. <laughs> yeah, I thought it was a really interesting conversation there, and I think we might maybe have them as we get those reports out each month, having them on to give us some of their insight behind the why of what happened in each of those month surveys. Exactly. And like you were saying, those, those questions that are kind of one-off questions they throw on, uh, that'll be good stuff to know and to, uh, to have in our back pocket as we're uh, trying to bring the news to the people. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we are bringing news to the people through our new website, globalagnetwork.com slash agnewsdaily, as well as our social media handles on Facebook and on Twitter at agnewsdaily, which you can follow along with us. We always tweet and share news as well on there. Mike, with that, should we let the people go? Let's let them go.